When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, here, let's just start right there because, you know, with you and BJ, you both, you know, you, you, you both were on the first three teams and you both played for Tim Floyd. So that's kind of an interesting little connection with the two of you. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the interesting thing is I don't think people – and I'll start with the Tim Floyd part because – I know Tim Floyd's been out and about. He's been on the airwaves. He's been interviewed quite a bit. It's been very enlightening to hear some of the things he's had to say. But I don't think Tim Floyd realized what he was getting himself into when he accepted that job with the Chicago Bulls. Now, one of the reasons why I say that is the pressures of coaching at the next level, the highest level there is, and – the pressures and the expectations that come along with it. I know they talk about players all the time and uh, what they deal with and the adversity they deal with, but also think about players, what the Bulls were and what they were then. Now that Tim Floyd is there, pretty much the whole roster's gone and you got Elton Brand and, and Ron Artest and, you know, I, the, the list goes on and, you know, they're now pretty much rebuilding. And they brought guys like BJ and I in to kind of help, you know, bridge the gap a little bit. But BJ and I were good friends, and we used to hang out a lot. And uh, we used to eat, you know, being up in that area, we used to eat at Ruth Chris. We used to eat at Benny Hanna, you know. And we found out that we was like, somehow, Tim Floyd always used to know where we were. Because we'd go to dinner with our wives, and as we'd walk in, they'd be like, hey, good to see you guys. Hey, Tim Floyd's here. And at first we were like, oh, that's kind of ironic. And then we'd realize, well, he, A, he's there by himself. B, he's saddled up at the bar because of, you know, he's having a few pops because he's just like pulling his hair out being a head coach of a professional team. <laughs> and then we went to another place and they're like, hey, Tim Floyd's here. And then we realized next thing you know, he plops down, sits down right next to us and you know, you're like, he's been drinking a little bit. And you're like, yeah, this isn't going too well for him, is it? But, you know, he adapted. But it was just, I don't think people understand the pressures that come with trying to. I think every coach wants that challenge because, hey, this is the NBA. This is the highest level. Can I succeed here? Unfortunately, Tim did not. I don't want to say he failed miserably, but I'm not sure he was really put in a position to succeed because of the personnel. But, you know, he, his reign as an NBA coach didn't last very long. He was looking for a friend, it sounds like. Like, hey, you guys are older. I'm coaching high school kids. <laughs> Some shoulder to lean on, maybe. I don't know. We were trying – I mean, honestly, we were trying to help him. I mean, I spent a lot of time in his office. BJ spent time in his office. But, you know, I, I just remember BJ and I would talk, you know, because I lived in Lake Forest. BJ had a place in Highland Park. and. You know, we would be talking and they'd just be like, ah, I don't know what to say, man. I don't know how to help this guy because the hardest part is, you know, what did we win? I don't even know how many games we won, man. It's like sometimes those are those things that you want to forget and try to, you know, blank out, you know. But it just – it was not a good situation all around. And BJ was dealing with a little injury. And it was just – it was tough to – the first time we were both with the organization, where the organization was, and then where it was at that point. That year, y'all won 17, and that was after 
13-17-15, they went down the year after y'all left, which is kind of hard to believe. I was stunned. They came to Tim Floyd after they won 72 games? Gary <laughs> wants to take the team apart? Like, oh, my God, dude. You got arguably – and I we've had this conversation offline where I actually think the 91 Bulls were better than the 96 Bulls. But regardless, that, 70, that 96 team was widely considered – the greatest team of all time, and here Jerry wants to take, you know, he's looking to the future and he's, he's thinking about himself. Kind of amazing. Well, there's little, there are pros and cons to both, all right? It was obvious that Jerry had tabbed his next coach. What he hadn't defined was is what year is he going to be our new coach? Um, I don't know. 100% what happened between him and Phil. You know, I, I have always stated as, as much success as Jerry has had, like any general manager, he had failure as well. But whatever provoked him to make the statement before and during the season that Phil Jackson will not be back. Even if he goes 82-0, he will not be back. I don't know why he ever said that. I don't – I know there was a lot of animosity between the two. I know there was the division of Phil Jackson and everybody on his side and Jerry Krause and everybody on his side. I know Phil made it very uncomfortable for the, for the players as well and was doing an interview with Bill Winnington earlier on, and we were talking about at that point, you know, when you were a player, there was – front office, which was included basketball ops, and then there were the coaches and the players. There were two sides to every argument. And as a player, you just kind of fell in line with what your coach was doing. But, you know, the one thing is you've heard guys talk about how maybe it was – Jerry's been portrayed as, uh, you know, Darth Vader, villainous, evil, because he wanted to break that team up. I don't know how much he truly wanted to break that team up, but he was preparing for the future, not knowing when the future was. And I think Jerry felt that Tim Floyd would be the perfect guy to follow Phil. But unfortunately for Jerry, Michael never bought in. And then that's where you also, we have the discussion about what's harder, actually getting a bunch of guys to overachieve. Like Doc Rivers talked about one of the best seasons he ever had was the year he was named uh, – coach of the year with the Orlando Magic. He went 41 and 41. He said for 82 games, he used the same pregame speech. Those guys in the other locker room don't respect you. And those guys, you know, were ready to go out and play. So I did that 82 times. I go 500, I'm the coach of the year. But you also talk about how difficult it is. And is, that, is it actually more difficult to coach great players and figure out to get them to play at their maximum, at their best every single night over an 82-game season? and respond to the expectations that's put on them. So it was teed up last night along those lines of, like, expectations that, well, first of all, you know, you came in, it's 1988. You're not playing a whole lot. The team is trying to get at Scotty and Horace's second year. And at the end of the year, you guys are going to fire Doug. I'm, I'm assuming that was a complete shock to you? I had heard rumors. Okay. About that. Um, and, you know, you saw, as you talked about, a little bit of that was shown last night on, the, on uh, the last dance. But, you know, it was kind of interesting that Doug really didn't want to go in depth on that. Um, but I think that's where you have to, you know, sometimes you can – too smart is dumb. So maybe wanting to break the team up and bringing in Tim Floyd is dumb. But – also, he had the ability to recognize that, you know, if we bring in Phil Jackson, we bring in Tex Winter, that we'll now get to the next level, which, you know, when that, when that, when that all happened, you're like, wow, the success we just had with Doug Collins as our head coach and you're firing him, talking about – set the precedence, but also the expectation of the new coaching staff that's coming in that you talk about putting a spotlight on somebody, but you know, 
Jerry Krause did it. He pulled the trigger, and it, it worked out. What was your relationship like with Phil at that time? And when they named him, we were like, this guy? Or we are like, oh, this makes a whole lot of sense. Well, I mean, at that point, you know, I didn't necessarily have much of a relationship with any of the coaches. You know, I didn't I, – I understood on one hand why I wasn't playing a lot because I traded for Bill Cartwright. Dave Corzine was still there. Right. So, you know, it, as they say, I had to kind of earn my stripes. I had to learn the game because it was a different game for me at that level. Um, you talk about I didn't play a lot. I think I played like a total of 187 minutes the whole year. But the one thing I tried to do is just be attentive. Um, listen to Bill Cartwright. We went to a lot of meals, had a lot of meals together, which I paid for quite a bit of them. Cheap <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Dave Corzine taught me a lot of things I didn't need to learn, but yet it was fun anyways. But, you know, you always thought that Doug knew the game. There was no doubt about it. You know, Michael played for him. He put the ball in Michael's hands. Michael loved that. Michael talked about it in the last dance, you know. How do you want me to go to Phil Jackson in a triangle when I was with Doug Collins who put the ball in my hands and now you want to take the ball out of my hands? I don't know about this. So, and I also felt uh, bad for Doug because there were rumors that part of the reason was because he didn't play me enough that, you know, all right, he doesn't like young guys and he's not getting along with Scotty. He's not getting along with Horace. He doesn't get along with Will. So there was a lot of scuttlebutt, but I think it was more about what Jerry saw in Phil. And, you know, Phil at that time, I think the player, the one player he had a relationship with was Michael. But I don't know about how strong his relationship was with everybody else at that time. So that's interesting because, you know, Michael's laying it out like Doug was his guy. But then you would hear stuff. To me, it wasn't fully covered. Like the rumors at the time was that, Jordan would tell people that Doug was crying when you guys would lose. And he was, he was poking at him a little bit. It, but, like, last time I made it out like they were, they were this. And as I remember it, it wasn't like that. Well, the one thing that I remember was is that that struck me as odd was I didn't know much about Doug the player until, you know, I got to Chicago and I heard about his career. And then I started asking questions, you know, about some friends of his that I ran across throughout the season. And they talked to me about how good of a player he was, but how emotional he was. And, you know, one of the things you heard Patch talk about, I mean, this guy worked his ass off during the game. He'd take his jacket off post-game and he'd literally be drenched. You could see through his shirt, you know. But he was also very emotional. He wore, he wore his emotions on his sleeve. And he would play to the crowd a little bit. And I know that aggravated Scotty. I know that aggravated Horace a little bit. The way that he approached. You know, he pushed guys. But I think sometimes guys felt that maybe he crossed the line a little bit. I know Michael loved that he challenged him. Because Michael answered, answered all challenges. And, you know, Phil took, as we all know, a little different approach. And I think because Phil was a little more laid back, not as emotional, and uh, not so much in your face that guys took to him a little more, even though he was trying to push the triangle on everybody and there was a little pushback at the same time. Yeah, so it was put out that it took about a year for you guys to pick it up. Is, was that accurate in your mind? I'd say about a year to a year and a half to really get it. So, you know, I think people have been, heard about it enough, seen enough videos on it, uh, you know, understand okay there's a triangle here there's a triangle there if you always have proper rotation there's triangles all over the floor you know it's a read offense there are certain calls to try to get somebody on a backdoor cut you know one off as they say but the way the offense is run you know unlike a play where if you run a play and it doesn't work you have to set up again and then run another play you got to remember in the NBA, it's a 24-second shot clock, so it has to be constant ball movement, constant player movement. So if the first option doesn't work, there's a third option, then a fourth option. But where the offense is different is the defense predicates what the offense does instead of vice versa. Mostly you make up offensive plays to try to move the defense around accordingly, you know, make the defense react to you. But this offense was, was designed to react to what the defense does. If you try to overplay the wing, which is free throw line extended, the post comes up to the elbow. That's uh, the uh, the uh, 
it's like an audible for football. It's an automatic, you know, because of how the, and then the guy goes back door and you get that little jump off. But if you don't get that, the guy comes around the weak side and I come across with a dribble weave for the handoff. And, you know, next thing you know, you're back on the other side of the floor, which, you know, the one thing you want to try to do is turn the ball from one side of the floor to the other to break down the defense. You can't just keep the ball at one side of the floor. I know it's, it's very intricate to talk about. It's tough to describe. But once we learned it and realized what the strengths were, I think you'll agree there were times when it was poetry in motion. But there were also times when it was clunky. It was, it was very slow, 24-second violations. But we also had the best bailout man in basketball and Michael Jordan. We, and one of the roles of the guys coming off the bench was whenever the shot clock got down to five and we still didn't have a shot, we'd all start screaming red, which meant that the closest big man would run over and set the screen for Michael to come off and let him go one-on-one. He didn't hate that. No, he, uh, as we say, he never saw a shot he didn't like. What, what do you remember about – he had his uh, rough start with, with Cartwright. Here, Oakley gets traded, and that was kind of portrayed as a beautiful thing too. But originally, Jordan doesn't like it, and he doesn't trust Cartwright, does, does, doesn't think he has the hands to even throw him the ball. What I remember is he started talking crap about Bill, like, don't give it to him. Cartwright finds out, goes to Jordan and says, you, you keep saying stuff about me, I'm going to break your legs. Am I missing anything here? <laughs> It was something like that, but, um, you know, Bill at that time was kind of defined as the ball stopper, meaning with the ball went in the post where it's supposed to go in, you want to try to provide that penetration by passing the ball into the post. Well, Bill wasn't a very quick reactionary player, right? Bill was very methodical, but he was also very good at what he did. But what Michael didn't like was, is when the ball went in the post, there were certain cuts that you were supposed to run. But at the same time, the ball doesn't move like if it goes to the wing or it goes to the opposite or if it goes to the top of the key. And, you, you know, he felt like when the ball went into the post a lot of times, it stopped there. And that, that kind of brought the offense down. And the one thing that sometimes those guys wouldn't do was pass the ball into the post even though it was open because they felt like it wasn't coming back out. Because Bill had to kind of get himself going to wind up and get that shot off. But it took a while, I think, not only just to trust Bill, but to trust everybody. But the biggest thing, I think, where the tide started to turn in Bill's favor and Michael became more accepting of Bill was what he was able – what Bill was able to do on the backside of the defense. He was the eyes and the ears of the defense. Even though he was difficult to hear because of his voice, he was also very talkative but was very accountable – and felt responsible for the defense, especially on the back end, because guys, a lot of times when you're looking at the ball, you have to rely on somebody else to tell you where your man is or the guy's cutting back door. And Bill was really good at that. And Michael became to realize that, hey, I can cheat a little bit on defense. I can, you know, jump into the passing lanes and try to make a steal. And if I don't make it and the guy goes back door, Bill will be there to cover for me. And then the next guy rotates to cover for Bill. You know, the old defense, everybody's on a string. You're constantly moving even when you get beat. You know, you get yourself back into the play. And like everybody, it took a while for Bill to garner that respect from Michael, even though Bill wasn't necessarily trying to play for that respect. Bill was just playing. But it took a while to get that from Michael. How did you get it, Will? How did you start to get some confidence from MJ? You know, I Bill helped me out with that a lot, talking to me about it. Pax helped me out with that. You know, I always tell the story, you know, I was embarrassed by it early on, but, you know, now that I'm older, you know, so Michael only knew two things, the ACC, because that's where he played, and then the Big Ten, because back then in the 80s, you only saw local basketball. You know, you didn't see every single conference. So what did he see when he lived in Chicago? He saw Big Ten. So I get drafted, and he sees the name Purdue, and he's like, well, that guy's not even good enough to play at Purdue. I'm going to call him Will Vanderbilt. And so I finally learned that he hardly ever saw me play. He didn't really know much about me, so he kind of made a blind statement. I didn't necessarily take it personally, but it, it hurt a little bit. But I just kept working. You know, like I said, I didn't play a lot my rookie year. I think he saw my work ethic. I was always in the gym, always in the weight room. And I also, I didn't back down. You know, I accepted his challenge. I continued to practice hard. And as I slowly started to play, I slowly started to develop that trust. But I think a lot of it also had to do with 
you know, I thought I fit pretty well into what they were trying to do and what the schemes and the purpose of the triangle offense was. You know, unlike Bill, when I caught it, I immediately looked for the open man and, and moved the ball around, and I think he, he appreciated that. Well, in, in championship number three, you started about a third of the games that year, did you not? If yeah, they, uh, as we joked with Bill, that was load management. We didn't know what the term was back then because he was at the end of his career. We were just kind of told by Phil that occasionally Bill was going to take games off so we would have injuries. Now, I'm not saying that he wasn't injured because we basically used to joke with Bill. He was a walking injury, but he always played injured. He didn't like to sit out, but Phil felt it was necessary to try to have him as healthy and as fresh as possible when we got to that run in April, May, and June. So he would take him out of games, and I was able to start a lot of those games, but at the same time, getting in that starting lineup and also playing more minutes with Jordan. Because the one thing he realized was, you know, I was not afraid to run over and put my body on somebody and set a screen and get him open and screen his man so that they had the day, meaning the defense had to switch. And now he had the ability to go one-on-one -on -one against my man. And unlike Bill, Bill would set the screen and roll into the paint and clog up the lane and get in the way of Michael. I would set the screen and then just get the hell out of the way because you're like, oh, who has the better mismatch? I'm smart enough to realize this one. I'm going to leave that open and let Michael go one-on-one -on -one against the big. And then you also realize that, okay, now they got to start doubling. Put yourself in a position to where you're open. But not only are you open, Michael can actually get to you the pass. That's the other thing I think he learned that I was smart enough to realize how to play the game. He didn't have to teach me or tell me how to play. Well, I think also one thing you're not naming that – I'm assuming he appreciated is when, when he fed you down low, you were going to dunk it. You weren't going to miss a layup. You were, you were going to generally power at home. So he played with a bunch of guys uh, who, who ne didn't necessarily do that. I, <laughs> I think you probably liked that, Will Purdue. Well, I got, I got undressed by him a couple times earlier in my career in a game for, as you mentioned, missing a pass, you know, not being prepared, maybe not getting a rebound I should have had, or every once in a while you miss a bunny that cost him an assist. And I realized that that's, if I want to survive here and if I want to be able to play with that guy, you know, I need to be a little more focused. I need to raise my level of play, but also if he does pass it to me, make sure I finish or at least get to the free throw line so that he has something to show for his efforts. Yeah. It's interesting because it was teed up, and, and BJ named it, uh, that Scotty – would not have become Scotty had he not played with Michael and had that account, that accountability and that just, and, and Jordan named like it was, I'll, I'm right there with you, man. And it, and it helped him. I'm wondering if you think playing with Michael helped you or perhaps, you know, you, you got less opportunities and had to learn a role and maybe, maybe it hindered you. No, I think it actually helped me. Um, you know, I prided myself on my work ethic when I came in from Vanderbilt. But I realized right away, and when I say right away, I mean that very first practice in training camp, in, you know, uh, October of 1988. This is this dude's a different breed. Yeah, I watched him play. I heard the stories, but you know, it's one thing to hear the stories, but then experience it firsthand and think about this is training camp, man. We're we're getting ready for the season. This guy's already in, in midseason form. I mean, this guy wants to win every drill, every shooting game, every scrimmage. You're like, I've never experienced anything like this. And, and the intensity of which he played, but then also off the floor, uh, whether it was poker games, which I never played in because I couldn't, couldn't, you know, didn't feel comfortable playing for that amount of money. But whether it was uh, word jumble, I mean, this dude found a way to make everything competitive. And, that, and I had never experienced anything like that. It was just – it made me more competitive. It made me a harder worker. It made me understand really what the definition of intensity was. But it also helped me respect him a lot more because I think people don't realize how difficult it is to be that good all the time. I've never seen somebody be able to answer the bell every single night. And then funny thing was – you're like, oh, Michael only had 28 tonight. Oh, he had a bad night. <laughs> yeah, it was a little off. Yeah, right. It was – I mean, for him, scoring points was like flowing water. Turn on the faucet. And it, I, mean, I remember him talking about scoring 32. Now, that, that's just 8, 8, 8, 8. Like, 
Eight points in a quarter, no big deal. I think that what people don't realize is, is that when people emulate you, like Kobe did, I think that's the utmost respect as far as what did Michael do earlier in his career? He attacked the basket. He dunked on everybody. You know, he was Air Jordan. But as he got older, he realized that, hey, I got to develop, you know, a better mid-range game. Uh, I got to develop the three-point shot. And then you see Kobe basically do the exact – it was almost like Kobe just took Michael's script and said, all right, this is how I'm going to play my career. You know, trying to emulate him, I think, is the utmost respect about, you know, just how good he was, how intelligent he was, but how smart he was as far as to make himself last but still be relevant. Do you agree with the thought that Scotty wouldn't have become Scotty had he not been drafted by the Bulls? I don't think he would be a top 50 player, first and foremost. I think he still would have been an all-star. But you always wonder about who would have been that guy in Seattle, hypothetically, if they didn't trade him. That would have held him accountable like Michael did. You know, there's, there's plenty of guys that are going to, you know, as they say, are going to jump in the foxhole with you. But how good is that guy next to you in the foxhole? Yeah, he's a great teammate, and he's going to go to war with you. But how good is that guy? And if you take the best player on the planet, the best player in the league, and the guy that basically says, hey, man, I'm with you, but I need you to step it up. I'm there with you. I'm, an, I'm leading the way. All you got to do is follow. But it's not as easy as follow. You got to do as I do as far as you got to increase the effort. And I think two things that really stand out to me about Scotty, where I think that separated him from other players that maybe he wouldn't have done that he, that he was able to do in Chicago because of the expectations of Michael. One in the 91 finals uh, when he guarded Magic Johnson, what he did to him. I'm not sure if he would have ever saw the importance of that, maybe playing somewhere else. And two, I still question this. You know, this whole show is 98. It's the last dance, right? I understand how good Michael is, best player ever. But when you take the whole body of work, you talk about points, you talk about rebounds, you talk about assists, you talk about steals, you talk about the importance of one individual on both ends of the floor. I mean, in that uh, game five against Charlotte in the second round, Scotty played every minute of that game. I think it was actually 47 minutes and 48 seconds. Had five steals, six rebounds, I think. But seven rebounds, six. You just like he continually played complete games. He played complete games against the Nets in the first round, complete games against the Charlotte Hornets in the second round. I always wonder, you know, he, he couldn't score like Michael, but was he maybe the more complete player at that point in 98? But because he was playing in Michael's shadow, yeah, he's a top 50 player, but maybe he was even better than that because of what he was able to do as the player. And I think Michael was the one that pushed him to that level. Well, and you played him with him in 93, 94. Michael was retired, and you guys were a, a call away from going to the Eastern Conference Finals, and who knows what happens at that point. And then 94, 95, the guy was an MVP candidate. He was out of his freaking mind. Yeah, and that's, that's where I think he took what Michael taught him and continued, because now he was thrust into the leadership role as well. That's another feather in his cap. Yeah, he struggled because everybody's like, well, I remember that game. He didn't go in. Bad choice. But he learned from it. And also, you know, you're somebody that covered the team. He, the frustration when he grabbed that chair and threw it on the floor. Bad choice. Yeah, it was a rocky road. But the things that he learned once Michael was gone, he's like, hey, I got to take what that guy taught me, even though he's not here anymore. No longer his shadow. This is what I've always asked for. I'm no longer a Jordan Air. I'm actually Scottie Pippen, the face of the franchise. My legacy is going to be tarnished if I don't answer the bell. Because then all everybody will talk about is, well, the best Robin ever. Now they're talking about, hey, not only top 50, but as you pointed out, Michael leaves. The next year we win 55 games, a call away from Eastern Conference Finals and maybe going to the finals again without him. And then the following year, being an MVP candidate. 
that 93, 94 year, I was so married to Jordan and his legacy. I'm like, if these guys go to the finals, like it's it, it was it was hard for like a, a diehard Jordan. Like, oh my God, I couldn't believe what was going on. Because I thought you guys would, you know, be a 500 team at best, and, and there you were, which I thought spoke a lot to Jordan's impact on everyone and, and, and also the motivation to prove, like, hey, man, it's not just the Jordanaires. Yeah, but I think it was, as you talk about, the competitive nature that he had developed that we were now able to carry over into that next year. The intensity was still there. The Doberman defense was still there. You had some different members at the party, but yet very talented guys guys that still play with a lot of pride and you know the fact that Michael wasn't there and the doubt by the media also played some motivation as well so you know 55 games get in that you know questionable call against the Knicks but I think that's also even though we don't talk about it it's something in the back of our minds you know I didn't play a lot that year either because I got hurt but guys that are guys are proud of they're proud of that accomplishment because it meant a lot to them yeah you, uh, you're teased out in the end of the last dance, Will Purdue, about Horace. I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. And I think everyone has seen it, but just to name it, the Jordan Rules book by Sam Smith had a lot of quotes that weren't attributed. And it's been well reported that it was Horace. And Horace now denies this, uh, which I don't know what's true or what's not true. You talked about Horace not feeling like he was getting the respect. And a lot of this conversation we just had right now is you felt like you were benefited by playing with Michael. Scotty said a million nice things. Why do you think it was, that Horace had such a hard time appreciating the position he was in? Well, the hard part is, is when you see guys getting credit and you put in the effort and the time I feel like Horace is, is a better player than he ever got credit for. I know he got rewarded with the contract in Orlando, but I don't think he got the respect and the notoriety he deserved for what he did with the Chicago Bulls. Um, you know, I think because of Michael and Scotty, did I think Michael made him better? Absolutely. Scotty make him better? Yeah, Scotty was his best friend. They were running mates. But, Scott, but Horace may be the guy that might have gotten more recognition had he gone somewhere else. You know, the one thing that Horace certainly was was very appreciated in Orlando. You know, he even talked about how he kind of maybe felt he was the guy that was going to take Shaq and Penny to the finals, which he did as the veteran leader. But he also provided a vital role playing, his, playing that four spot. Um, you know, I saw that piece – and I started making me, you know, okay, let's turn the wheels here. What was that question they were asking? Because I did, I was actually interviewed for that back in February of 2019. So I was like, okay, I got to try to remember the question. Because did they actually use my answer for the question they asked? Or did it fit better for the point they're trying to make? You know, sometimes. Yeah. But the one thing I, and, I, and, and probably that was a little liberty on myself. Because I always felt like Horace was underappreciated. You know, he was the guy that Phil attacked more than anybody. Now, I've learned since I did that interview back in February of 2019 that Horace, and I didn't know this, but Horace talked about how Phil brought him into his office and said, listen, you're going to be my go-to guy, meaning you're going to be the guy I yell at, but I'm going to be kind of directing messages through you to other guys, most notably Scotty and, and Michael. So, A, that's a compliment because he feels like that Horace can take it. But at the same time, Horace even admitted, you know, over a whole season, it just it kind of just wears on you. And, of course, and at times, Horace would push back. And I'm waiting to see that whole, that whole uh, segment because I personally do not believe Horace was the one giving Sam Smith the information. I know, you know, they were – things going on behind the scenes. There was adversity being dealt with. You know, we're now, you know, champions. We're looked at differently. There's different expectations. But I think, unfortunately, you know, as this plays out, maybe Horace got a bad rap because, you know, there is the thing right there, Michael going, Horace was the one that was giving Sam all the information. So, you know, immediately people are going to jump to conclusions. Horace is the guy. That's the rat. And I'm not sure that's the case. I think the rat might have been a little higher up the chain. Interesting. 
You don't want to name anyone, do you? Well, I don't want to name anybody because I'm not sure if I'm right. I want to wait and see because that's the other thing. I didn't get advanced screenings of the, uh, the 10, 10 episodes. I could have because I was in it, but I decided, you know, I'm going to watch it like everybody else. I mean, I found it to be fascinating. I've been riveted to it. I've been hitting rewind and be like, what do you say? I've learned something, quite honestly, in every episode. Even at times I was there, didn't know some stuff happened. So I'm curious how this plays out. A, I don't want to give anything away if I happen to be right. But B, I'm not even sure if they'll actually say who that guy was. And I don't, as, as, and I'll ask you, has Sam Smith ever revealed who his source was? So, and I'm good friends with Sam. I mean, I talk to him all, I don't know, good friends, like we don't have dinner every night, but I talk to Sam all the time. I just had him on last week. And whenever I'm covering, it's like one of my go-tos. I always love talking to Sam. And he's never told me that. And I've been to his house and we've done documentaries on Craig Hodges and and everything. So I'm actually afraid to ask Sam because I don't want to put him in that spot. Like, but now, and hey, Sam's got to be in it, right? They've already talked to him, so what's he going to say? There's, I don't think he's going to out Horace. And, but I do know that Horace was at his we- that Sam was at Horace's wedding, was he not? Um, now, if that's the case, that doesn't look too good. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, Horace, as you saw in that thing, and he, he denies that was him. He says that's a bunch of BS. So, you know, the one thing – that Phil talked about, Bill Cartwright shared with me, John Paxson shared with me, you have to figure out on the media side who you can trust because there's always going to be conversations on the record, but you'll also learn there's going to be conversations off the record. And you have to determine and figure out how you develop those relationships with everybody on the media side about who you can trust with certain information. So I'm going to throw out a guess, and this is just a guess, and you don't have to confirm or not. Um, But I was a senior in high school at Highland Park and going to the (laughs) multiplex, and I asked Johnny Bach for an interview. And he grants it, and I'm in like the, uh, you know, in the coach's offices in multiplex. Now, for high school kids, Chicago Bulls, it's a big deal. And I, you know, said I was never a Jerry Krause fan. I said something made it, you know, some crack or asked a question and he fired at it. Well, I don't think Mr. Krause was too pleased about that. And I'm like, well, hold on a second here. Like if I wasn't running for the shoreline, like this would be, if this was in the trib, if I was Bob Sakamoto or Sam Smith at the time, this would be a good story. You know, so I, I don't know. I, that, that'd be one guess that I could throw out there that maybe Johnny and he didn't, and Johnny didn't last with the team. Eventually he was replaced. So I don't know. Well, I don't think so quite honestly, because, Johnny Bach was the military guy. Yeah, that's true. Johnny Bach was the guy that was zipped up tight, you know. And I remember when I first got there, Johnny Bach was the guy that kind of players gravitated to because he was pretty cool. He had really good stories. But at the same time, you know, he wasn't Mr. Worm and Fuzzy at first. It was almost like he was feeling you out like you were feeling him out. Okay. And uh, I, I developed a pretty good relationship with Johnny Bach. And we would, you know, they would always have the coaches go to half court and congregate and talk and the players are waiting. And when the co- coaches came back, you know, Phil always talked and the coaches would hang back. I had a, uh, a penance where I would talk with Johnny about, hey, what'd you talk about? What's this? What's that? And then I would, I would run into Johnny Bach on the road all the time. Johnny Bach, a lot of times, ate by himself. Not like he was a recluse, but he was a guy that was, because he was an Army guy, he knew how to entertain himself. He was very regimented. I got to do this, 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 and this. And when I would see him by himself, whether it was walking on the streets in the hotel lobby, we used to always sit and talk. And I remember numerous conversations sitting in hotel lobbies and the couches just chatting about basketball and, and uh, the military. And so I would really find it hard to believe yeah. that he would be that guy because that was just – that was kind of like an unwritten rule, something you didn't do. Interesting. Uh, that's, that sounds spot on. What, <laughs> what, what you, you mentioned, Wilt, things that have surprised you or that you didn't know. Anything jump to mind? Um, just about uh, 
mainly probably like, hey, the, the Horace thing. You know, I know next week, you know, and talking to Horace, you know, he talked about how Phil pulled him into his office. Phil was really good at talking to players behind closed doors, but also approaching players so it wasn't like you were going to the principal's office. You know, like the team gets in a huddle and you're really like, hey, Will, I need to talk to you. And everybody's like, uh-oh, he's in trouble. And But he was always, uh, I don't know if shifty is the right word, but he did a nice job of kind of having conversations with guys and other players knowing that maybe, you know, hey, you're going to the principal's office, so I don't like something you're doing in that relation. Um, you know, I just – I wish it would go more into depth about what was actually the, di the dividing the factor between Jerry and Phil. That would be interesting. Um, you know – the hatred, and I, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm not 100% positive of, you know, MJ and not only the Pistons, but Isaiah. You know, I know a lot of people are absolutely positive it's because of the freeze out of the All-Star game, but I've never heard those words spoken by Michael. You know, it's just an assumption. Um, but I've also found it very entertaining because BJ and I talk about this in a sense that it brings back a lot of memories that, quite honestly, we haven't talked about since the 20-year reunion. You know, they had the 20-year reunion in 2011, and they brought us out on the floor, and, you know, that was really cool, and that was the first time we'd really been together since then as a, as a unit, and, you know, as they say, you just reminisce. But even since then, it's been nine years since the reunion, and, you know, some of those things, you just kind of move on with life. We got families, we got kids, and all of a sudden, to sit there and watch that, and you're like, wow. Because I specifically remember, you know, that whole thing, we we beat the Lakers in 91 and the emotions for MJ are just pouring out, but it's not just MJ. I mean, I know they focused on him, but you got John Paxson and everything he had dealt with in his career in one corner crying and weeping. And you got Bill Cartwright, everything he's dealt with and the injuries and the trade and, you know, all these veteran guys that have put in significant time that finally win a championship. And here I was just a, a third-year guy being like, hey, this is cool, man. We're going to be here every year. Wow. This is but I'm like, what's, what's going on with these guys, you know? Grown men don't cry. What's, what's the thing here? You know, it was just – it was so enlightening to a certain extent. But I just remember last night watching it with my son. I mean, I kind of teared up a little bit because that was a reminder of just – as they said, I mean, that was literally three years of work, not only getting past the Pistons, but also now actually beating – you know, the Lakers, the team that had won 11 championships at that point. It's interesting just to hear that part. I love it. and appreciate you sharing it. I'm thinking about in 93 when you guys won in Phoenix, they're panning through the locker room, and they show BJ, and he's sitting on the ground. The emotions are all over him, and Phil comes and picks him up. And I, I don't know if you have any recollection of that at all, but I was just like, here's a guy who – was wanting to star, was trying to beat Pax out all these years, and then finally he gets his shot to do it. John got older, but of course Pax hits the huge shot in that, you know, in, in game six. But you could just see, like, the journey was just on him at that point. Mm -hmm. Okay, I, I finally got to star, be a bigger part of it, and, you know, that type of thing. And that's what people – that was the hard part. You had to establish relationships with your teammates. But also at the same time, you were trying to take their job. You know, I, I talk about how I was very fortunate to have Bill Cartwright. You know, I was kind of tabbed as Billy's rookie, and we would go eat a lot. And uh, I always tell people that, that, you know, that cheap bastard never paid. He always seemed to forget his wallet. But I would just constantly pepper him with questions. And I remember one time, you know, Billy, as you probably know, you, you talked to him many times. He always had that disgusted look on his face, right? And I remember one time he, he always had this thing where he would just kind of like hesitate and be like, now look, <laughs> I can't tell you everything I know because you're trying to take my job. Some things you're just going to have to figure out on your own. And I'm like, yeah, but I was told that you'll, you're going to help me. You're going to make me a better player. He goes, yes, but not at the cost of my minutes. So figure it out, you know. So it was, it was good advice, but I was, like, literally stunned. And I thought for sure that would be one meal that he would pay for. Lesson <laughs> learned. Nah, he left with, and left me with the check. 
See, I appreciate that, though. That's old, that's old school right there. That's like Norm Van Leer type stuff. I'm not helping any rookie or even second, third year, fourth year guy take my, take my gig. What are you, nuts? That was, that was Bill in a nutshell in the sense that he would talk about on the bench how somebody's playing you at a game, how you need to play somebody differently in the post, like uh, hypothetically a Patrick Ewing uh, or a Brad Doherty with Cleveland. Um, during timeouts, he would pull you aside uh, and, and share information with you. But it was, that was the fine line, like to go, get back to BJ's situation about, you know, he respected Pax. Um, he learned a lot from him. But he also thought that at a certain point, you know, hey, I'm better than this guy. I deserve to play more. I just not necessarily start, but hey, you know, I, my minutes need to go up. I feel like I've earned that. I put in the time. And when you do that, and not only do you get to that position to where you're becoming uh, more important within the team framework, but then we win another championship. You know, you saw even a guy like BJ who, you know, was pretty pent up. I thought a guy was very mature for his age. I learned a lot from him, even though I was, you know, one year older than him about his approach and his discipline to even see a guy like him who hardly showed any emotion to be doing something of that nature to just kind of let it all out after winning that championship in 93. It's just, it's really hard to explain, right? It's, it's until you experience it. Cause you're kind of like, well, if you could imagine, no, uh, if you could imagine, no, um, no, it's it's really hard to put into words what that's you know what that is really like. I'm looking at your career, Will. In '94, '95, when Michael comes back, you started all every game that year, and I remember you know when you go back to when he's coming back in Indiana, and they're doing the starting lineups. And there's, you know, the, he comes out and you're in that huddle and there's this yeah. smile on your face. It just, uh, it had to feel great. Like, all right, Michael's back. I'm the starting center. This is, this is, uh, this is awesome. Well, that's kind of like the ultimate scenario, right? You get drafted in 88. You got to come in. You got to earn your stripes. You know, it was a constant uphill battle. Michael retires. We're all stunned. We're like, what the hell's going on here? You know, this is what's he doing to us? You know, obviously he wasn't doing anything to us, you know, the whole thing with his father, but that, you know, that was the last thing we expected to happen. He goes and plays baseball and he comes back and yeah, I'm in a starting lineup, but I just, I specifically remember that he the enthusiasm on his face, the, the how happy he was to be there, literally playing none other than, than Reggie Miller and the Indiana Pacers, probably Reggie Miller's biggest nemesis even though Reggie accepted the challenge, there was the guy. And, and it was almost like Michael was like in the huddle and he was kind of looking down and be like, I'm back. All right, guys, let's go have some fun. And that's literally what he said. And we went out and, you know, as, as you know, the rest is history. And it was just, that's one of those things you always remember because people were like, as you talked about, people were like, yeah, I remember when Michael came back and you're in that huddle and you could plainly see the smile on your face. and You were just like, his enthusiasm for the game, along with his work ethic and his intensity, was infectious. I thought I was the first one that noticed that, Will. I was, <laughs> that's, that's disappointing. I thought I was kind of in my, my Perry Mason or whatever. That's, that's a weird reference. But well, anyway. here, Mark, I have a question for you. I know you're the one, and I've talked about this without naming you, about how I had – I've been telling people, you know, how – I've had a local media member reach out to me and mention that, hey, there's a possibility that this 91 team might be the best team. And since you brought that up, what was that? Probably maybe six weeks ago? Sure, sure. I started thinking about it more and I, you know, started diving into the numbers. Well, if you just look at the numbers only, that's a, that's a false statement. But I started thinking about some of the things you said, and I want you to kind of elaborate a little bit because you're a local guy who has significant history. As you mentioned, a Highland Park guy. <laughs> and it's, but my point is it's hard for me to talk about a guy who was drafted by an organization, comes into a city, slowly learns about the importance of sports 
to that city, but how hardcore and supportive those fans are. But for a guy like yourself who experienced it and then now is in the business, I'm curious what it is. I mean, I kind of have an idea, but I want you to put it in your own words about why you felt that 91 championship was so important, not only to the organization, but to the city. Oh, so there's, there's a million reasons there. But, well, first of all, like when I look at the totality of Jordan's career, like people ask me, when did you know that Michael was the best player in the game? And now in, in, in 84, I'm 11, okay? So <laughs> whatever, you know, I'm seeing is through an 11-year-old's eyes. And then I remember his second year, we come home on a Sunday afternoon, and it's me and my dad and one of my friends, and we watch him score 63 in the garden. And my dad and my brothers, they're much older than me. They're like, this guy's Gale Sayers. You know, this is, this is unbelievable. And then the start of the 86-87 season, it's opening night in New York. I'm at a buddy of mine's bar mitzvah. I go up to the bartender, and because the game's not on, I'm like, the Bulls win? Yeah, Jordan at 50. And at that point, I was like, this guy is the best in the game. I don't care what anyone says, and he's not going to – and this is, this is it. And so for years, it was about, you know, Magic, he can't make his players, he can't make his teammates win. Uh, Magic's better, Bird's better. So it was painful as a, as a Bulls fan and, and as a Jordan fan because people, they put it in your face. And so, but watching him from a pure athletic standpoint, like I thought his peak years were 86, 87, and 87, 88. He's scoring 37 a night. He's getting 200 steals. He's getting 100 blocks. He's flying through the air. He's winning slam dunk contests. And it was like, who could be better than that? And so then as it went along, you know, to get through Detroit, he had to put on weight. And so it, he, his athleticism went down or is just pure speed. And, and so I, I am preferential to that, to the younger Michael. And it, it took Scotty to come along and you guys to get the whole framework that you talked about tonight to – to be a team to do it. But I thought like the, the peak of his ability was say 88, 89. I mean, th that playoff run beating Cleveland and going through New York and going up 2-1 on Detroit, it was, it was ridiculous. And, and you guys weren't ready to win quite yet. And he was still had you on the, on the cusp of it. So it just kind of took everybody to catch up. So I just thought that his athleticism was going down. And by the time you get to 96, he'd been retired for 17 months. And he was a great basketball player, incredibly fundamental and super smart. But he wasn't anywhere close to what he was in 87, 88. And then you look at the numbers, which you teed up. He shot 55% in the finals in 91. He shot 41 in 96. And OK, Seattle's a better defensive team. But Gary Payton's not giving Michael trouble in, in 88, 89. He'd kill him. And as far as, like, what it meant for the city. I mean, for me, I was always a basketball guy. So the Bears were always number one, and the Cubs were number two. And as a kid, the Bulls were getting outdrawn by the Sting. You know, Jerry talked about yeah. that. When I would go to games, the only times it would sell out was when Dr. J came in, when Bird came in, when Magic came in. And it sucked. Like, my friends were Lakers fans. They were self I, I hated it. <laughs> and so here – you, you got to the mountaintop. Now Jordan's widely considered the greatest player in the game. And the Bulls are the number one thing in Chicago. And it goes on for a whole decade. You know, my, my friends, Will, they, they were driving around with brooms out of their car when he all swept Detroit. I mean, we're, we got a text chain going through watching the last dance. My friends, are, 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 our tears are coming in there. Because we're, we're just loving it. It was for a kid around my age at that time, there was, there was nothing more fun than coming up watching the Bulls and that team. So then you start, saw Michael from start to finish. How many, in your opinion, how many times did he re remake his game to adapt to the way the league was changing? So that's a great question. Definitely had to do it from where he was at young to, to actually win a first title. And then when he comes back, I mean, his post-up game was there beforehand, but it was a whole other thing at that point. So I would say three times. I don't know. You'd be better at you'd be better at uh, better able to answer that question. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I thought there's the original Michael that you talked about that was just the freakish athlete. 
Um, then there was the Michael that realized that, okay, as my body changes and I got bigger, you know, to absorb the contact, uh, he worked on the, the mid-range game. And then there was a the guy that started to shoot the three-pointers, but also the guy that developed, so maybe even four times, the guy that developed the post-up game. And that's the sign of the greats, the guys that always add something to their game. They're always tinkering. They're, they're supposedly some kind of weakness, you know, that they address on their own or they just want to get better without somebody telling them. And for the record, on the, on the 91 team, Scotty was peak coming into his prime, off the charts athletically. You mentioned it, guarding Magic 94 feet, and his offense is coming. Horace, phenomenal finisher at the basket, phenomenal defender, underrated shooter. Bill, better in my mind, better than Luke. Just, just a, I mean, Cartwright in his prime was a guy was a twenty point scorer, and, and at that point he was a great defender and could give you some offense. Pax was a perfect complement, and I liked your bench. You guys, everybody came in and gave energy. Yourself, Stacy, Scott was uh, he? He yep. was there and fight. Greg Hodges. Hodges could sh- would give you a lift. Cliff Levingston. And Phil was a guy that was going to play his guys 38, 39 minutes. You weren't being asked to do a ton, but, but whenever it was asked, there was a boost. You know, and BJ had his, has had his moments too. So, And then you go to 92, you guys knew you were the champs at that point, but it's a back-to-back. It was just a, a tougher slog, right? You had to go through yeah. seven. Cleveland took you to six. It wasn't – and – you know, you were nearly in the seventh game with Portland. Yeah, it was – I just don't think that people understood. I, I know there's a big fascination with the league now, you know, with the amount of three-pointers and then, you know, the points per game. But I just don't think people realized – you know, I know they look at the numbers and they're like, oh, that guy's pretty good. You know, I, I kind of I'm – I'm fascinated by the term, okay, who's the best player? Then, okay, who's the best two-way player? I'm like, wait a minute, that's two different players? (laughs) How many two-way players there were in the league back then? You know, like you talk about Portland. I'm not sure people realize how good Clyde Drexler was in his prime because he played at Portland. He played all the way on the West Coast, and Portland didn't get a lot of games on TV back then because, you know, it wasn't – the NBA wasn't prime time, you know, so there weren't a lot of games on television, and when there were games – most of the time, if it was a West Coast team, it was the Lakers. And if it was an East Coast team, it was the, it was the Boston Celtics. And everybody else kind of was fighting for uh, bits and pieces, the crumbs of what was left over. Yeah, I like that team a lot. Terry Porter was a great point guard. Jerome had tremendous athletic talent. Buck Williams was solid. Whew. Yeah, that was, that, was, that was a hell of a basketball team. All right, here, Will, let me, let me wrap up with this. And it's going to be a, a, a slightly unpleasant ending. Who do you think gets the most blame for ending in '98? Because in my mind, like that team should have walked. They, I would have been damn happy uh, if whatever '99, 2000, Bulls lose. They're walking off the court. United Center comes to its feet, standing ovation. The runs over, and it's complete. And, and you can't – there's nothing to think about what ifs. And Jerry's getting a lot of flack for it, but you can make other arguments that, like, well, at the end of the day, Phil was offered to stay. And then after that, well, Michael could have stayed and still played. Like, he didn't have to take his ball and go home. And then, of course, there's the top of the food chain, and you could point at Jerry. How do you kind of boil that part down? Well, you know, I've been watching this now. The first week I watched with my wife in Chicago, and – you know, not to brag at my wife, but she's uh, vice president and partner. And, you know, Jerry was made out to be the villain in the first weekend. And, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf was being interviewed. And I know, as you just mentioned, well, you know, Jerry could have stepped in again because the first time he went out to Montana and convinced Phil to sign a one-year contract to come back. Why couldn't he do that again? You know, why did he allow Jerry Krause to ruin everything? Well, the one thing that, you know, my wife said that she learned, and as you talk about in the food chain, Jerry Reinsdorf had Jerry Krause for a reason. Jerry Krause was supposed to protect Jerry Reinsdorf. And, you know, if we want to talk about a weakness for Jerry Reinsdorf, it's loyalty. But 
he had the stones to realize that I was going to take a baseball scout and make him a basketball general manager. And this guy brought us six championships. So my job is to make the ultimate, the final decision, but I'm going to allow Jerry to do his job. You know, I think it's more is made out of what was going on with Jerry Krause in the sense that when you used to walk into Jerry's office, Jerry Krause's office, he used to have this big board up there with every player from every team. So he had all 30 teams, right? And then he had all the players, and there was, they were color-coded with letters. So if a player's name had more than one color in it, it means they were multi-position. They could play multiple positions. And the one thing that Jerry always talked about was, is I'm always looking for value. If I think I can get a better player for you, I'm going to make a trade. Horace tells a story about how while he was trying to negotiate a contract, he tells his agent, I, I'd trade Horace for AC Green right now. You're like, what? But he was always thinking ahead, not saying it was right, but he was trying to prevent, and I believe it, them from becoming the Celtics, in a, you know, trying to prevent the roller coaster, trying to constantly climb the mountain instead of, you know, descending down the mountain and having to start all over again. I don't think technically that he handled it correctly. Um, you know, Reinsdorf could have stepped in. I think there's fault at everywhere. I thought Jerry Reinsdorf could have handled it differently. I thought obviously Jerry Krause could have handled it differently. I think that people have to realize that Phil, you know, had a lot to do with this. Because remember, Reinsdorf talked about Phil said, hey, I'm at the end of my rope anyways. And when Phil first started, he goes, maybe eight, maybe nine years, maybe seven at the most. You know, he thought there was a window that would close and he'd have to move on, even if they didn't get rid of him. And then Michael, as you talked about, he didn't necessarily have to hitch his saddle, you know, to Phil and Phil only. But that was a decision that he made. So everybody stood firm on their ground. Nobody budged. And this is what happened. So I think that, you know, blame should be spread around but unfortunately for Jerry Krause, he is the guy that's been, you know, at, at the top of the board as far as getting the most blame as far as let's dismantle this team when I think everybody agrees they should have found a way to try to bring them back. Now, that leads to the next question. Could that team have beaten the Spurs? Tim Duncan was a bad boy. David Robinson, you know, and I always talk about, uh, I think the, the, the key matchup would have been Sean Elliott versus Scottie Pippen. Do I think Scottie was a better player than Sean Elliott? Yes. But I also think that Sean Elliott was a lot better than people give him credit for. You know, talking about a guy always playing in somebody's shadow. That guy was an all-star. And he was really good. And I think that he, had, you know, maybe Scottie gets a slight advantage. But I think that, you know, Sean Elliott provides a lot more in that series than people think. Because, you know, and I also think that Sean Elliott could have guarded Michael Jordan as well. I would have loved to have seen it. Uh, hey, listen, at the time, I was a Spurs, so I would have loved to have seen that matchup as well, man. <laughs> I was going to say, like, that's home base right there. Let's go. Nobody, want, nobody wants to be known for more than ending somebody's dynasty, right? As long or as short as that technical dynasty is. So – I can always say I was part of that team that ended the bad boys dynasty, and I, I take great pride in that. The look on your face when you all lost in seven, you looked straight miserable. Like, oh. it, it, was, it was a very unhappy Will Purdue. And I loved it. I'm like, oh, Purdue straight. This is the key cares to that level. It was, it was obvious. Well, and that was – it was just like – we were talking about after that game how quiet it was in the locker room. There wasn't a lot of conversation. It was just like, we blew it. We had it. We blew it. I know people talk about the migraine, but I never questioned Scotty. You know, we know a lot more about migraines now. We know how debilitating they can be. But, you know, everybody always wants to point fingers and blame somebody. But that was a loss on all of us. And the one thing is, we were very fortunate to be able to recover from that because what some people don't realize, and I know you're in the business and you hear this, the window of opportunity is very small. 
And I don't think people realize how small that is. And I think a team of that wasn't as tough mentally, and we can credit the Detroit Pistons for that, for helping us. But if we weren't as tough mentally, we may never have recorded, uh, recovered from that, and our window of opportunity would have closed. And who knows what would have happened. Funny, because uh, we mentioned Sam earlier. He, he talks about the shot in 89. He misses that shot. Doug's, you know, they're firing Doug. They trade Scotty. They trade Horace. Who, who, who knows? I mean, Michael was screaming for Buck Williams at the time and everything else. So it's, it's crazy how it all played out. Hey, Will, you're awesome. Thank you so, so much for doing this. We, I greatly, greatly appreciate it. We thank you. Oh, man, I tell you, like I said, it's just it's been fun to relive those moments. Um, you know, some stuff that we hadn't talked about in a while. And it's actually got a lot of us back together because we're all being asked to do interviews and, and things like that. So we're kind of looking at ourselves as the Blues Brothers, man. The band's back together. <laughs> hey, I'm loving it. This is like the biggest positive of this time right now. Like we get to relive this again. I never thought this was going to happen. I have an excuse to talk about it. It's really all I ever want to talk about. So this is great. Well, thanks so much. You got it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.